Amen. All right. Happy spring break to everybody who just got back from spring break. Good luck on re-entry tomorrow morning. All right, so if uh, you're just catching up with us, we are in week three of a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is perhaps the most famous of Jesus' words, of Jesus' teachings recorded in the Gospels. And I would argue that kind of pound for pound, word for word, it's like the greatest collection, um, assembly of wisdom into how to live the best possible life here and now, ever recorded, ever like written down on paper. And there's been lots of kind of valid entries. The Ten Commandments is a pretty good start. There's been lots of writings over you know, the last several thousand years of human civilization because over the last several thousand years of human civilization, every group, every subsect of a group, every religion, philosophy, political orientation, everybody has tried to figure out the answer to really kind of two questions, and they're related. The first question is, what is the good life? Like, what's the highest, best, richest, most fulfilling, most rewarding life that we could live right now? And everybody's got lots of ideas about what that looks like. In fact, if you walked into a bookstore, the few that are left in person, if you walked into a bookstore, they have a whole section on this. It's this self-help section that everybody has a different spin and angle about seven tips or ten habits or three ideas to help you live your best life possible. And there's like kind of this innate desire towards trying to figure out what this looks like. We all look to the left or to the right to try to identify who we deem as the authority as to who might be able to give us guidance on how to live the best life possible, on what it means to live the good life. Now, the self-help section is designed for people like me. And for the last 15 years, I've spent too much money trying to discover is surely there's one book that has all of the secrets and all of the answers about how you could live a better life now. I'm always looking for tips and tricks and improvements and life hacks and all these ways to kind of optimize my own life. But what we often fail to do is recognize that perhaps, maybe without a doubt, the answer to how to live the best life possible the richest, fullest, most rewarding life imaginable is actually contained in the writing and the teaching of Jesus. Now, for many of us, we hear Jesus' words and we're like, that's nice. And we kind of uh, keep it in this subsection of our life because most of what Jesus said and taught and most of what the Bible says doesn't really apply to the rest of our lives. On Sundays, we kind of go and unlock it out of the cabinet or cupboard, wherever we hide it in, and we pull it out and we use it for a couple hours that morning, maybe until we get to brunch or lunch after church. And then we put it back away until we pick it back up again the following Sunday or the following month of Sundays later when we come back to church. Just generalizing. But really what Jesus teaches in the the Sermon on the Mount is the answer is the authority on what the fullest, richest life possible holds for us. And so for the past couple of weeks, we've been laying foundation work to help us understand the contents of the Sermon on the Mount, what it looks like and how we can actually live this good life. And in week one, what we said was Jesus shows up on the scene at the beginning of his public ministry and he announces that 
the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's available to people. There's this opportunity to live in the world as God intends it, according to God's rule. And the byproduct, the result of this kingdom of heaven is this good life, this rich, rewarding, full, beautiful, meaningful life. And then last week, what we talked about was the second question that people wrestle with. If the first question is, what is the good life? The second question is, who has it? Or who has access to it? Or who are the type of people that get to experience and to live this good life? And what we saw is kind of in the list of the Beatitudes that Jesus goes through, is he kind of turns upside down conventional kind of wisdom as to who had access to this good life. And he casts the net to the furthest extent possible, saying that all of the people who kind of the people who thought that they were good would least suspect as being recipients of this, you know, invitation into the kingdom of heaven, into the good life, they actually were going to be the ones who had first access to it. And so kind of what happened through all of this teaching and all of kind of these words that Jesus shares is it starts to shake up the establishment and it starts to make kind of the religious leaders uncomfortable because here's what happens. If people are living their life according to a set of principles, thinking that that is what allows them access into the good life or the kingdom of heaven, and then this man shows up named Jesus and teaches that the good life is available to a whole bunch of people who don't follow all of those same rules, you start to have kind of two groups of people. One group of people who are the ones who follow the rules saying, wait a minute, that's not fair. And we talked about that last week. But then you have this other group of people who are like, wait a minute, we get in? And so there's kind of this confusion about, and if we get in and we don't follow all the rules, are the rules even necessary? And so there's a lot of confusion about, one, what is the good life? And two, who has access to it and what does that look like kind of in a practical day-to-day way? And so we're going to jump right in to kind of this next segment in understanding Jesus' words and wisdom in the Sermon on the Mount. And the question that I want you to kind of to wrestle with as I'm kind of going to lead us through this is, is this one. Do you actually trust the wisdom that Jesus offers? Do you actually trust that what Jesus is teaching here is going to be the way to live the best life possible? Because it's a lot harder than other ways of living. It requires more. It challenges us to more. And if, it's, and if you don't trust Jesus, then it doesn't make a lot of sense to trust his advice here. And so it's one thing to say that you trust and then to not do what he says, but it's another to say, okay, I, if I trust, then I got to do. And that's what we see kind of Jesus do at the very end of this whole Sermon on the Mount. This is kind of the dichotomy he sets up. There's two groups of people. You're either going to hear these words and you're going to do them, or you're going to hear these words and you're not going to do them. And I think ultimately the choice between whether or not we choose to do what Jesus instructs us to do is ultimately based on whether or not we trust Jesus. Do we think that he is the smartest, wisest, you know, most divine person who's ever lived that actually understands the secret to how we can live the richest, fullest life as God intended? Or is he just this nice kind of figure who we grew up learning about in church and occasionally we interact with him when we need to. 
So let's jump in. If you have your Bibles, pull them out. If not, I'll do the work for you and I'll show it on the screen. But we are in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, starting in verse 17. Now remember, Jesus announces the availability of the kingdom of heaven. This kind of reality here and now that we can live into. But Jesus changes who he says has access to it. And it's not the people who follow all the rules in the way that they thought. And so it kind of presents this question of, are the rules worth following? And so Jesus needs to clarify. And this is what he says. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. This would kind of be most of what we understand as the Old Testament, these Hebrew scriptures, the writings that, and when we read law, we think like, you know, speed limits and things like that. This was more like guidelines for living, instruction on life. So I haven't come to abolish the instruction that you've received from Moses or the prophets who kind of came in and provided application and clarification for how to actually live into this set of instruction. I haven't come to do away with that. This is what Jesus is saying. He says, I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Now this idea of fulfill is this idea of bringing it to completion uh, to show what it looks like in its fullness, in its wholeness. Um, if you were to like have a puzzle piece or a puzzle and you finally put all of the pieces together and you stood back and you, you know, kind of admired the image that it created, this would be kind of what Jesus means with this word fulfill. There's not like a series of prophecies specifically that he's like, okay, I'm going to do all of this, but it's like, no, I'm going to show you what the fullness of living out these instructions look like. And I'm going to demonstrate it with my life and give you instruction for how to do it in your own life. Matthew, this is what he says in this first verse. I haven't come to do away with any of this. And he says, for truly I tell you until kind of the end of time, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter of the law will pass until all is completed, until everything exists as it's intended to. And so he goes on. He says, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then we're going to camp out on this verse for, here, for a second. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Another way to read that would be, you will never experience the kingdom of heaven. This is not talking about the afterlife. This is talking about the availability here and now to live life as God intended us to live it. So he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to unpack a little bit about what he's saying here because some of these words are a little confusing and they don't quite mean for us what they meant when Jesus said them you know, in the original context. So there's this word righteousness. And he talks about your righteousness versus the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he kind of sets up this juxtaposition between the righteousness that he's wanting us to live out and the righteousness demonstrated by the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, this word righteousness, let me kind of unpack it. Now, it's pronounced dikaiosene. A little confusing. I'm not going to have you all say it together. And that's the only time I'm going to use it. All right, because it's a little confusing and it's in Greek. And so, but what's more important is what it means is it's a state of one who is as they ought to be. 
Another word for it is righteousness. I love it when they use the definition in the, the word in the definition. It's the condition of being acceptable to God. It means integrity, virtue, purity of life, rightness, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. Another way to understand this is when you're living, acting, and thinking in a way that puts you in right relationship with yourself, with God, and with others. When you're doing life as God intended you to do it, that's what this idea of righteousness means. It doesn't mean that you're like good in and of yourself, but it means that kind of your behavior demonstrates kind of an inner character and an inner quality of your heart. Your heart is in proper alignment to God. It's in proper alignment to other people. It's in proper alignment to yourself. It's kind of everything is as it should be. This is what this kind of word means. And so when Jesus uses it here to set up this juxtaposition, he's saying unless your righteousness, unless kind of the, your inner goodness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so the question we have to ask next is, well, what was the inner goodness of the scribes and the Pharisees? Now, what was important to the scribes and the Pharisees at that time was demonstrating via action their fidelity their kind of obedience to the law. It was really important to them to actually do what the law said to do. And it was really important that other people saw that they were doing what the law said to do. But what ended up happening is they missed a part of kind of the spirit or the intent of the law. So we would kind of create this juxtaposition between kind of the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. They followed the letter of the law. They did what it said to do, but there was all of this kind of spirit or heart or intent behind the law that they missed. Now, a really easy example for this kind of probably occurred in your childhood. It occurred in my childhood. And if you have children, it's occurring right now. Now, to demonstrate this, I'm going to need a little help. Matthew or Michael, will you come up here? He doesn't know that I've asked him to do this. So he has no idea what's about to happen. Now, there's been a point in all of our lives where we were on a road trip. And if you had multiple children, the siblings were in the back seat of the car. Come on, sit next to me, please. I think this will hold us. Now, what would happen is the kids would start to bicker and fight with each other. Their hands would be on each other. You know, they would do all of this so everybody can see. That's right. That's right. And then from the front seat, what would the parents say? Stop hitting your brother or stop touching your sister. Don't touch your sibling. And so we would all follow the letter of the law. And we would miss the spirit of the law because this is what would happen next. You would do all of the things and you would like do everything but actually touching the person. All right, thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah, give it up for Michael. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about. There's a way to be obedient to the letter of the law and to totally miss the heart and the spirit of the law. Jesus is saying the righteousness, the way of living in proper obedience and alignment to what God's instructing, is concerned far more with the heart and the spirit of the law. Yes, it requires you to follow the letter of the law, but it's so much more than that. It's so much bigger, it's so much more expansive and inclusive of just following what the words actually say. But it's about the intent and the heart. Now, if you were here with us when we kind of went through our last sermon series, um, what we talked about was the difference between like behavior modification 
and heart transformation. In our series, Troubled Hearts, we talked about if we focus on behavior modification, we'll never get our arms around it. But if we focus on heart transformation, there will be a shift and a change within us. This is what Jesus is getting at. It's those same ideas. And so what Jesus says next is going to demonstrate and illustrate through a couple of different scenarios the difference between kind of the righteousness of kind of what used to exist and then this new version of kingdom righteousness. So you've heard this before. He says, you've heard it's, that it was said, but I say to you, you've heard that it was said, and then he lists some law, some instruction, some guidance. And then he goes, but I say to you, and then he shares a little bit. And then he does this six different times in this next passage, the next kind of 20 or so verses. You've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And what Jesus is trying to do is to help us understand the difference between like this old version of righteousness, which, which is adherence to the letter of the law, and this new version of righteousness, this kingdom righteousness, which changes and transforms our heart to understand the intent and the spirit of the law. Does that distinction make sense? Okay. We're going to kind of look at one example of this. There's, I think he does six examples, and we don't have time to get through all of them. But we're going to look at the first one, and I think it's probably the most important. Now, what I think is really cool, and this is, as a pastor, I totally, like, nerd out on some of this stuff. But it, it's almost like with these six examples that he gives to demonstrate the difference between old righteousness and kingdom righteousness— it's almost like they build on top of each other. He starts with the biggest, the most egregious, and then he kind of works his way to lesser and lesser and lesser offenses. Now, it's intentional because this whole discourse, this Sermon on the Mount, is meant to be understood as kind of one continual kind of treatise on what it looks like to live in the kingdom of heaven, the way that you can live to have access to it. And so what he does is like, as you start to understand how to get your arms around this, then it's going to make it easier for you to get your arms around this, and then this, and then this, and then this. And so this is kind of your homework assignment for those of you who accept the mission. Go home and read through Matthew 5, like 21 through 48, and you'll see the way that they start to build upon one another. It's this really cool, I think really brilliant way that Jesus is trying to help us move towards this place of heart transformation. It's not just a series of new instructions, of new laws, of new rules that we have to follow. Because again, that's the old way of thinking. That focuses on the letter of the law. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. What Jesus is trying to help us understand here is become the type of person who then does these things. Change your hearts, change your minds, change your orientation to love people better, to love God more. And then the byproduct, the outflowing of all of that will be these things. You won't have to worry about murder or anger as we'll see here in a second because your heart's so transformed. The goal is not to avoid just being angry, but the goal is to become the type of person for which anger isn't an issue anymore. And that distinction is really, really critical for us to understand. So let's jump into this one example that we're going to look at this morning. Maybe hope this kind of land the plane and kind of punctuate uh, all that Jesus is trying to teach us here. So in verse 21, he goes in and he says, you've heard it said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. And the old version of righteousness would score and judge themselves whether or not they did or didn't murder somebody. I didn't murder anybody. Check. 
I got that one right. Hopefully we can all here say that. If not, that's okay. Glad you're here and out. Okay. Or haven't told anybody about it. We'll do confessional after the service. But this is kind of the letter of the law. Don't murder. Because if you are, you're liable to judgment, as we hope you be. But he goes on, because that's the old righteousness. The new righteousness is this. But I say to you that if you're angry with someone, with a brother or sister, not just like siblings, you will be liable to judgment. So, wait, first it's like old righteousness is don't murder. Kingdom righteousness is you're liable to the same judgment that you were liable to for committing murder if you get angry with somebody. It's like, well, wait a minute. That's different. That doesn't feel the same because, again, Jesus isn't trying to focus on behavior modification. It's heart transformation. It's about beginning to evaluate the way that you're thinking and feeling and acting in relationship to yourself and to others and to God. And so he kind of puts everybody on notice, like there's more here. And he goes on and he says, and if you say Raka, which I, I know we're all guilty of that, right? To a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. Now this term Raka is actually something that we don't say it, but we do it. It's, it was an expression of contempt. Now, here's the issue that Jesus is trying to get at. When you murder somebody, as one does, when you murder somebody, you, based on your actions, demonstrate that their life is less valuable than your life. You demean and belittle and decrease the value of their life by ending it. Jesus is saying that with your anger, with your contempt, you're affecting the same thing upon a person as if you were to kill them. The spirit and the heart of both of those things is the same, even if the actions look different. Now, we all know this. Come on. You've been in your car, and whether they were going faster than you or they were going slower than you, we all had that moment where we passed them or they passed us, and then we shot them the glance. You know the glance? The glance like, you are such a fill-in-the-blank. And if we're honest, if we're really like being truthful here, that glance, that look, whether it was accompanied with words or not, indicates that they are inferior to us in some way. They are less than we are. That's the heart of contempt. It's the belief that somebody is less than than you are. It's this mean-spirited, belittling, decreasing, dehumanizing of another person or another group of people. Now, when you take it to kind of its furthest extremes, what you see is all sorts of kind of human rights violations and atrocities happening because of the heart and the spirit of this issue. When someone is less human than you or less than you, you're permissible to do a whole lot of things to them that harm them and hurt them, whether emotionally, you know, physically, psychically, spiritually, whatever it is. This is what Jesus is trying to get at. He's saying, listen, if you're going to be somebody who lives in the kingdom of heaven, if you want to be the type of person who has access to life as God intends it, you have to evaluate the way that you're treating people, not just are you killing people, but are you belittling? Are you diminishing? Are you dehumanizing them in some shape, form, or fashion? And he goes on. He says, and if you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, for us, that seems really extreme. 
But that phrase at the time was this combination of contempt and anger and also uh, this intent of threat of violence. Like this was kind of the term that you would use to describe somebody who not only was like the lowest kind of level of human existence, but they'd be better off dead or if they were killed. So you can see how this fits in juxtaposition to Jesus's command or Jesus's reminder of the command. You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. When you speak to someone, when you think of someone, when you express an emotion towards someone that says you might as well not exist, you have removed all value of their life, all dignity and worth that they contain. I think this is the thing that I see most prevalent in our society today through kind of the filter and the kind of the barrier of social media, the way that people speak to other people is awful. It's truly awful. I mean, it goes far beyond just bullying, but the dehumanization that we see in our world and in our society is truly, we might as well be killing each other with the way that we're speaking to each other. On some type of spiritual, emotional level, that is what's happening. That's the intent behind the words and the vitriol that we spew towards each other. It's venomous and it's awful. Jesus is saying that's the exact opposite of what it looks like to live in the kingdom of heaven. That misses the entire intent and heart behind the command, thou shalt not murder. So don't just stop there, but you've got to go all the way to take it to its furthest extreme. Even in the words and the thoughts and the emotions that you use with somebody and the treatment that you have of somebody, the way that you talk about somebody behind their back, Jesus is saying that's all contained in this idea of kind of valuing human life. You see how when you make that shift, that heart transformation, well, murder's not going to be an issue because I'm trying to bestow dignity upon people. I'm trying to will the good of the other above my own. I'm trying to love in a more complete and perfect way. I'm trying to love my neighbor as I love myself. I'm trying to love others as Christ loved me. And if I'm trying to do that, if that's the heart behind my actions, Well, there's no space for anger in that way. It doesn't mean that you don't feel the emotion of anger. That's not what we're talking about here, but it's the expression of. It's the willingness to act on. So anger, contempt, this venomous vitriol that we like like launch at people. Jesus said there's no space or place for that in the kingdom of heaven. Then he goes on and he says, So when you are offering your gift at the altar... Now, what we have to remember here is this idea of offering your gift at the altar is not kind of like putting cash in the offering plate when it comes around later in the service, um, which I hope you do. But what he's talking about here is like the highest level of religious ceremony. This was a really significant, really important spiritual moment in the life of the believer. It's the kind of the closest equivalent that we would have is to read this passage this way. So, when you're getting ready to be baptized, so, when you're standing there at your marriage ceremony, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave. Walk out of the the wedding. Leave the church as you're about to get baptized. It's that level of, like, importance and significance. Jesus is saying, this is such a big deal. 
in terms of the importance in which the way that you view your relationships and your treatment towards other people, that you should walk away from the most important spiritual religious things in your life to first address this. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then you can continue with all the other things. Jesus is saying really simply, like kingdom righteousness means that you can't be good with God if you're not good with other people. You can't. First, go address all of your issues with all of your other people as far as you are able to. I know that we're only 100% control of 50% of our relationships. So in the ways that you are able, go make it right. Then come approach God. You can't have one without the other. You can't have this spirituality and this depth of a relationship with God and horrible treatment or dysfunction in your relationships. They go hand in hand. What he's trying to get at is really simple. He's trying to help us understand the heart of all of this, the spirit, the intent behind everything that he's saying here. It's not just, did you or did you not murder somebody? It's like you have to reorient your entire way of acting, thinking, and feeling about your relationships and about the way that you demonstrate love towards people. And he goes on, and then he says, also come to terms quickly with your accuser when you're on your way to court. Like he's trying to extend to the furthest limits possible the idea of repairing, as far as you are able, any of your relationships, whether they are close and intimate or they are distant. This is really essential to Jesus' understanding of what it means to have kingdom righteousness in our life, to live as though we're a part of how God intends. It's the difference between the old righteousness and this kingdom righteousness that Jesus is offering. And that's just one of the six. And he goes on and on and on and re-clarifies old teaching about old righteousness and expands it to include the heart and the intent behind it to better accommodate kingdom righteousness, to look at what it means to truly love others as God loved us. Because this is kind of the place that he ends. He gets to the place where he talks about enemies. And he says, don't just treat those who you like well, but treat your enemies well. This is the furthest extent of all of this. Bless those who persecute you. And then he ends with this. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now this feels like, oh gosh, this is a new law and a new command that we'll never be able to aspire or attain. But this idea of perfect is not without blemish, not without mistake, but this is, it's this idea like we saw at the beginning of this passage about fulfillment. It says, be complete, be whole, be fully transformed in your heart, just as your heavenly father is. That's the goal. That's what it looks like to live in the kingdom of heaven. That's what it looks like to have kingdom righteousness, to have a total and complete transformation of your heart so that in all of the ways that you interact with others, it's loving and kind and wills their good above your own. Now, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't stop here. It goes on to kind of demonstrate other characteristics and aspects and attributes of what it means to look like in the kingdom of heaven. But we'll have to get to that next week. So let me pray for our time. We'll invite the band up to lead us in one last song, and then we'll close. God, thank you for this morning and our time together. Thank you for the opportunity to be reminded of what you were inviting us into, the type of life that is available to us. 
a life that is whole and complete in our transformation of our heart, that we love fully and completely the way that you love us. God, do this work within us and allow us to love others well. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, well, we'll invite the ushers forward. We'll collect our offering. If you've got your Connect card, this is the, the best time to put those in the basket as those come around, and then we'll stand and sing this song.